Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading from his word this morning. You may be seated. Lord God, I praise you as the creator of all things. You are the one who made the star that that Chuck just read about. You are the one who sent the sun that was the reason that the wise men came and worshipped. And you are the one who's called each of us into relationship with you, forgiving us of our sins, cleansing us from unrighteousness, putting your spirit in us that we might be freed from the power of sin and have the power and will to live a new life in Christ. Lord, please work in our hearts today as we discuss your word. Give me wisdom in what I say, and and even more than that, please work in everybody's heart that they will hear from you and remember your words. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the we we are doing a series on the voices of incarnation. Yeah, thank you, Justin. I am supposed to light these candles. And the biggest challenge here is don't light the white one. Don't light the white one. Mess it all up. The white one is for our Christmas Eve service. Thursday. It's coming Thursday. So, uh, voices of, in, of the Incarnation. Incarnation comes from a Latin word, and it means literally in the flesh. So this is about God becoming human in the person of Jesus Christ, God and human in the flesh. Um, Pastor Bob has led us through three weeks of this, where we first started with the voices of faith as revealed through Mary and Joseph, then the voices of uh, good news, revealed through the angels and the shepherds. And then last week, the voices, the voice, well, the voice of redemption as revealed through Simeon and Anna. And today, we're moving into the, the voice of adoration as revealed through the wise men. And so I'm lighting the, the fourth candle for the fourth Sunday of Advent, the Christmas season. Um, where I actually want to start here is... Um, I have this on. Don't have it on. Here we go. Technical problems. Okay. I want to start with dispelling a few misconceptions. And I'm going to start with the hymn we just sang. We three stop. 
As you look at the scripture there, I hope you've got your Bibles open, Matthew 2 in front of you. Where do you see a three? Who sees a three? There is a three. Where is it? Three gifts. Yeah, it's down near the end of it, the second to last verse. Verse 11, they give three gifts. But when it says the wise men came, um, there's no number there. So people have possibly deduced, the writer of the song being one of them probably, that, uh, that there's uh, three of these guys, but it doesn't actually say that. So we don't actually know for sure how many wise men that there were. There was an early church tradition uh, before Christianity even became legal um, where they thought there were like 12 of them. And you kind of see that maybe mirroring the number of apostles. We don't know. We don't know how many there were. Um, The second thing is kings. We three kings. They're not kings. What are they called? Wise men. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about this for a minute. Um, The Greek word is magos, and it it was a Babylonian word when it when it was came into the Greek 500 years or so before Christ, and it meant a range of things that you could view as being wise people, including teachers, priests, physicians, astrologers, seers, people who could interpret dreams, and sorcerers. By the time of Christ. It had kind of, in the, in the way that they were using the Greek, it, they had other words for teachers, priests, physicians. And it really had come down to being mainly used as astrologers and as sorcerers. And the other New Testament use of it, I have it on the note sheet. By the way, a side thing about the note sheet. The note sheet starts out with a good bit of detail. And then as you get down to the third section where I'm going to be talking about worship, it just gets blank. And that's intended to be where you just write down whatever God's laying, if you're a note taker, what God is laying on your heart about worship. Um, but on your notes there, I have there Acts 13, 6, and 8. The, these are the only places where this word is used in the New Testament. It's used in verses 1 through 12 here. Uh, actually, 1 through 16, I, I think, is the last time in chapter 2 where it gets used. And... We interpret it in, our, in your translation, and it's either going to be wise men or magi in most translations. Um, but in, in this Acts passage, let me hop over there real quick. Acts chapter 13, Paul is on the island, Paul and Barnabas are on the island of Cyprus. And starting in verse 6, Scripture says, Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, which is a town on the end of Cyprus, they found a certain sorcerer, that's this word, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar Jesus, who was with the council, with, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated. So he's got two names, Bar Jesus, and translated it's Elimus. Uh, he withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And if you remember that account. Paul ends up speaking against him, and he, I believe, is struck blind. And in him being struck blind, the proconsul sees the power of God and then believes the the word, wants to hear the rest of what they say and becomes a believer. Uh, But this is the other use of this Greek word in the New Testament in in what we would consider a negative way for a sorcerer. So you got a positive way as a wise man slash astrologer, even there we might have some issues with astrologer, and then sorcerer. Uh, are the uses here. Um, But the other thing that's very interesting is the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that had been translated hundreds of years before, uh, a few hundred years before uh, Jesus came in the flesh. Um, We get some insight into how these Greek words are used, the way the Hebrews use the Greek words in their own translation of the Old Testament. And so I I don't have them up here, but on the note sheet, I got a bunch of verses there where this word gets used, and they're in Daniel. And there's a number of passages where uh, Scripture will talk about the king calling all his magicians and astrologers 
and conjurers and sorcerers and dream interpreters. There'll be a bunch of different terms. And it sort of changes across those verses. But even without knowing Greek or Hebrew, you can look in those verses and by process of elimination, you can figure out which one this is being used for because you'll see astrologer show up in each of them. They don't all have the same words being used. In some of your translations, it may say conjurer. When it, where you see conjurer and astrologer in those Daniel passages, in the Septuagint, it's this word being used. And the reason for the conjurer one is, um, is um, the, the same as the sorcerer one, those, those two kind of parallel types of uses. So um, the probable meaning here is that these are astrologers that have come. They're not, they're not kings. The other thing to note is the word king used in our passage in Matthew 2. King, King Herod. King, in those first 12 verses, the ones that um, Chuck read, is actually used twice as many times as, as astrologers or wise men. Um, so they have a perfectly good Greek word for king and don't use it of these guys. So where am I? I'm in this song. We three kings of Orient are, we don't actually know they're from the Orient. They're from the East. Bearing gifts, we traverse afar. That, that would be true. This one has, has uh, just interested me. Field and fountain, moor and mountain. When you think of the three wise men, I, I'm dispelling misconceptions for we've grown up with. But when you think of the wise men, what kind of trip have they had? Through the desert, that's what you think. Come back to that in a minute. Uh, I looked up this guy, John Hopkins, down at the bottom of the hymnal who wrote the song and the music. And he wrote it in the mid-1800s living in Pennsylvania. So field and fountain more mountain makes sense if you're in Pennsylvania, right? He actually might have been close to the truth. I'll come back to that a little bit later. Um, but uh, the third thing is they were not there at the night of Jesus' birth. So I'm going to give you three um, reasons for this. But by the way, it means your manger scenes are wrong. If you've got a nativity, unless, unless, of course, you already knew this. Some of you know already knew this stuff. So you may have modified yours, and you've got, the, you've got the, the nativity over here, but you've moved the shepherds, I mean, the, the camels and the wise men over to another table because they're on the way. You know, maybe you modified yours. But, <laughs> but I'm going to give you three reasons why I make the statement that they were not there the night of Jesus' birth. And I'm going to give them to you from most compelling to least compelling. This is my opinion. Um, uh, I think the first reason particularly is very compelling. The last reason is, is a little iffy, but I, I'm going to give them all to you here. The first one was, what does the scripture say? Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, Now after Jesus was born, then to the end of that verse, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem. So after he was born, the rest of what we're going to read takes place. We know from Luke he was born at night. Angels appeared in the night sky, and uh, an angel appeared, announced his coming. Then the host of angels appeared to sing. Um, but there's an awful lot that's got to take place between the beginning of verse 1 and verse 11 where they get to where Jesus is, it's just too much logistically to have happened all on that one night. I mean, you look at this, that, that what's happening here in verse 2, that they've arrived at the end of verse 1, and what do they do? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. I don't believe they're saying this to Herod. They've just entered Jerusalem. They're saying it to someone that they've met. And support for that comes in verse 3. When Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. All of Jerusalem has heard this. It's not like they have come and got a private audience with Herod. And by the way, if you're just arriving cold from the east, they, they couldn't send a, you know, a text or email ahead of time to coordinate their visit. They just suddenly show up unexpected. It's going to take a little bit to get an audience with Herod. I mean, think about if you just arrived today in Washington, D.C., and you wanted to speak to the president. You know, it's just not going to happen that quick. So they arrive, they start asking this question, and it stirs up the, the city. People may have pointed them to Herod, 
We don't actually know that. When you get to verse 7, it says, Herod secretly called them. This, as far as we know, is the first time they actually meet with Herod. Now, in movies and things, you may see them arrive and talk to Herod. And Herod realizes while they're talking that they're looking for a baby and not an already grown man. It could, that could have happened. We don't know. The passage doesn't say that they met with Herod. I think it's more likely they're asking the question in the capital city and someone's gone and told Herod, hey, these guys showed up. They're on camels. They came from the east and they're asking about the king of the Jews. They saw a star and followed it all the way here. Well, what we do know from Scripture is this stirs Herod up a good bit, and he calls in the chief priests and the scribes to inquire about it. So now there's another meeting that's got to take place. Now, he had the, he had the clout. He could have called them all in at night, you know, just on the spur of the moment. But I think it's, it's just much more realistic. These guys probably arrived in the daytime. Uh, they started asking questions. Word got to Herod. He called these, the scribes and priests in to get the answer himself before he then seeks the audience with the wise men. And then he finally calls for them and has the conversation with them. And, uh, you sometimes see this happening in movies where it's over a meal. Maybe it was. We don't know. But it was in secret. And at that point, you wonder, well, why is it in secret? We find out later in Matthew 2, an account we're not going to read today, but uh, after they've left, he wants to take out this baby because it's a threat to his throne. So he's kind of using them as his own spies to go find them. So that's why he has a meeting in secret. But there's a lot that's taking place after Jesus was born for it to have all happened um, that very night. Second reason I want to give you is the Greek words that are being used. In verse 11, they enter a house. And I've got the, the word there for you. This is a common word used through, the, through much of the New Testament, always meaning a home where people are living. In the notes, I gave you several verses. It's not all of them. There's a whole lot more, but I give you several you can look at. Um, the guest room or inn from Luke 2.7, our translations say an inn. Bob talked a little bit about this last week. This word's very interesting. It's not used that many times at all in the New Testament. And, and it does mean an inn or a guest room. Uh, one of the other times where it is used, it's in the notes, um, it is sticking with Luke. It's in two pl- This verse I'm going to read is in two places, one in Mark, one in Luke. But in Luke twenty two eleven, this word shows up when Jesus is telling the disciples to go find the room where they're going to have the, the Passover. Verse 11, Luke twenty-two, eleven. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? There, you, That verse, you have both words. You've got house, but then you've got guest room. And Luke 2, 11 in the, in the passage, I mean, Luke 2, verse 7, the passage that, G, that Bob taught on last week, uh, they lay him in a manger because there was no room for them in an inn. Well, what is an inn? An inn is a building that's got a whole lot of guest rooms, right? And so um, you've, got, you've got different word use here and where, where clearly the writer could pick the right word. The most reasonable putting together of Luke's use of inn and the fact there was no room there and so where the animals are and laying them in a manger is, is while Matthew says that the, the wise men come and they go in a house, is that they're different days. Jesus has been born. There was no room for them, so they were out, out with the animals. And then Joseph figures out a way where they move over some days after that because he doesn't want to live with the animals forever with the newborn baby. So he works something out, and they're in a house by the time the wise men come. Now, the last one is the, wor- the Greek words for child and baby. And you've got these in the, in the notes, too. Um, I'm not going to go deep into this, but they're fundamentally different words. The, the reason I say this is the least compelling is there is some overlap. This word that's used for baby over in the Luke 2 passage, it has, it has two main uses. One is the baby in the womb. In Luke 1, it's used when Elizabeth talks about her baby uh, leapt in the womb uh, at the voice of 
the Savior's mom, um, Mary. Uh, it's also used for the newborn, right after that baby in the womb has come out of the womb. They use the same, same word for a newborn. I don't know at what point they stop using that term in transition. But the, the word that's used here in Matthew 2, where they, the star stood over where the child was in uh, verse 9, and then they, they go into the house and they saw the child with Mary uh, in verse 11, and then they worship. Uh, that word generally means little one, uh, young child. Now, here's where they overlap. It can mean infant. And so there's, there's some overlap there as, the, as a child's going from the newborn where they would use the other word, at some point there's this transition where they're kind of using both words, and then you switch and you're just using the word for child after that point. So I think this is the weakest of the three, but it's still, it's still evidence because Matthew doesn't choose to use the word that would be for a newborn at this point. Um, okay, so... I think they arrived sometime later. Now, the last one, I have question marks because we don't know. Camels crossing the desert. The desert part I'm going to come uh, back to a little bit later. Um, we don't know that they're on camels. You assume when you hear that they're wise men from the east that they came across the desert. But we don't actually know that for sure. Now, uh, and I'll come back to that in a little bit. Moving on to discerning the signs, there's two big signs that are in this passage. The first one is the star, and this, this is just fascinating. Here's the things we know from Scripture. Uh, they saw it in the east. That's what they're telling people when they arrive. Verse 2, saw it in the east, and they first saw it approximately two years earlier. This comes from verse 7 and again in 16. Herod is trying to find out how long did you see the star? Now, the assumption when he sends out his soldiers later in chapter 2 to kill every, all the boys that were under two years old in the Bethlehem area, the, star, the assumption there would be maybe the star appeared when the child was born, and the child's been growing since then. So if they saw the star two years ago, we need, he, he needs to kill everyone under two. Just because the star appeared doesn't mean that that's when the child was born. The star could have been leading them to come there to get there close to the birth. So we don't, we don't really know when Jesus is born in the two-year period. But the basis of that would be saying that certainly when the wise men arrived and worshipped Jesus as, as a child in the house, he's somewhere between a few days after birth and two years old. He's somewhere in there, but uh, Scripture's not actually telling us. Um, Another thing that is clear, though, is they associated it with the birth of the king of the Jews. They're waltzing into Jerusalem. Where is the child? Who's the, well, actually, they don't say child. They say, where is the king of the Jews? What? Well, no. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So being born is baked in to what they actually say. So they're looking for a child who's going to become the king. This is fascinating to me. How did they connect this? How did they know that the star went with Israel and with Israel's king? And I, I'm just going to tell you from the get-go, I, I don't know for sure. There's a lot of theories people have put out there. Um, there's a verse I want to read you from Numbers, Numbers 24. I have it in the note sheet, but I, I say there, use it with caution. When you actually read this verse, they could have taken this as a as meaning the star represents a king being born. But when you actually read it, uh, let me, let me read, read the passage to you. This is when Balaam has come, uh, the king of Moab has hired him to curse his enemies, which are the Israelites, which this is right before the Israelites go into the promised land. Starting in verse 15, So he took up his oracle and said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened, the utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. Lots of preliminary. Then he gets to the punch, to the punchline. Verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. And he goes on to talk about a few more countries. The problem I have with saying that 
this is how they know that the star is associated with the king of the Jews, is that when you read that passage, and I didn't read the whole thing, but if you read that passage, it's sounding like the star is a person who's going to come out and is going to rule, not that the star is an indicator that he's now being born. And frankly, when I read that passage, that could easily be a prophecy about David because David does all the things that are mentioned there. So I don't know. Some people take that as that is about Christ. You can look at it and um, come to your own conclusion. Uh, another thing that I think is, is credible is that we know that Daniel, when he's in exile in Babylon, he has uh, the Old Testament scriptures, all that had been written up to that point. He specifically in Daniel chapter 9 talks about the book of Jeremiah that he's reading from. Later in that chapter, he talks about the books of Moses, uh, the law of Moses, which is a reference to Genesis through Deuteronomy, to the Torah. And so he has the scriptures there in the Babylon area. Uh, Now, I need to say when it says they came from the east, we don't actually know that that's Babylon. It could have been further, further east. Um, But the scriptures that the Jews had were there. And so Daniel had had some impact. I, I, I think he might have had some impact on, on Cyrus's decision to free the, the Jews. Um, he could be the one that's why Cyrus read the prophecy about Isaiah and found out that it was about himself. Um, so that's speculation on my part. But those were available. I don't know. God might have ta- spoke to them in a dream. It could have been some miraculous thing. But somehow... These guys, however many they are, know that this star has to do with the king of the Jews being born. And they further know that they know that he's being born as a child and that he's going to be the king. And and notice here that Herod, when he hears this, he brings in the scribes, the the chief priests and scribes and asks them, where's the Christ to be born? The people in Jerusalem know this is not just a garden variety king. This phrase, the king of the Jews, they're connecting it immediately with the Messiah, the anointed one. Christ in in the Greek is the same as Messiah, anointed one in the Hebrew. And so the Christ that the prophecies are about, the Messiah, that's who Herod wants to know. Well, where is he going to be born? Because that's surely who they're talking about. So uh, the last thing that's clear from the passage is that the star came and stood over where the young child was. This is in verse 9. So I want to talk a little bit about the star. This, this sort of fascinates me. I've looked into this some. There are uh, people who talk about various conjunctions of planets and stars uh, possibly being the explanation for this, some natural explanation for how heavenly bodies move around. There's a lot of theories on that. But all the ones that I've looked into, they don't really line up with the right time frame. Um, Have you heard about the conjunction that's going on Monday night, Jupiter and Saturn? So I've been watching that through this year, and it's been moving. Where it is at a certain time every day, you know, it's changing. Now, it's moving from my perspective, because the Earth is also moving. But um, it's fascinating watching this thing. I went out Friday night with my hunting rifle to use my scope. I had, I had a pair of binoculars that are 7X, and I had uh, my scope for my hunting rifle's 9X. And so I was checking them out, Jupiter and Saturn, and, and I couldn't see the bands of... My hunting rifle, by the way, works better because just one eye through there. I could, I, could, I could see them good. But what did I see? I saw a larger white blob and a, lar- and a larger, tinier larger tinier can you do that the tiny white blob was bigger and the bigger white blob was bigger and whiter they were brilliant through my hunting rifle but i i couldn't see the bands in the red spot on jupiter i couldn't see saturn's rings i actually googled it it turns out you need 25x to see saturn's rings and i don't know if you know this but you can get a 50x telescope for like 60 to 150 dollars they're relatively cheap but if you're finding this out on friday night when the conjunction's Monday, people are ahead of you, and you can't, they're not in stores. And by the way, it's Christmas week. What do people do that want to buy, that are into astronomy, buy a cheap sat, uh, telescope for their kids? So I couldn't get one before the end of next week. It was too late. But if you have 
a telescope, you could see a cool thing Monday night because in the same view, you're supposed to be able to see Jupiter and Saturn slightly apart. And if you've got 50X, you could see the rings. I mean, it, that's it's fascinating to me. But here's what I want to tell you. I'm looking at this almost conjunction. And I agree, a conjunction can appear to move in the sky. It's been changing position for months. I've been watching it. Friday night, I'm looking at it, and it appears to be, uh, 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 when it got dark enough for me to see it, you can only see it for about an hour, and then it sets right now. Uh, earlier in the year, you could see it for hours and hours, but they were further apart. Right as I could first see it, it's hanging over my neighbor Michael's house through the woods in back of my house. But by the time it's about to set, it's now over my neighbor Wayne's house. They live like a rock's throw from each other. So it's, it appears to have moved, and it's over their house. And I could follow it, that conjunction. But what happens when I get to Wayne's house? It now looks like it's over the house further down the street. And if I keep going, I'd get to the Stevens Creek uh, boat ramp, and it'll look like it's across the river over the quarry, you know, along the... When you follow a conjunction, it doesn't actually... How do I know when to stop at the right place? It just... The, from what I know of conjunctions, whether planets or stars, it, do, it doesn't fit with verse 9 through 11. I think it's a miracle. That's where I come down at this point in my life. God had did a miracle to show them where to go. So anyway, those are the things that we know. They saw it in the east. Two, had seen it about two years earlier. Uh, it, they associated it somehow with the king of the Jews being born. And it led them to the house. God used them. Well, I shouldn't say to the house. It led them. Should I say the house? Let's see. It came and stood over where the child was. They've just been told in verse 6 through 8 by Herod, go to Bethlehem. Verse 8, go to Bethlehem, make a careful search for the child. Verse 9, they're still following the star. They see the star. By the way, there is room in here. You, I take it that they saw the star approximately two years before, and they've continued to see the star, and they've been following the star. But you could take, which also doesn't fit with a conjunction, by the way, because those happen, and then they move the, the two items or three items move apart. Starting. The conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn on the 21st, Monday. On Tuesday, if you look, they're going to start moving apart. But, um, but anyway, some people take it, and you, you could take this passage that they saw the star, realized they needed to go to Israel because he's king of the Jews, and then they didn't see the star anymore. And then when they get here, lo, the star's there, and they now see it. That would really be miraculous. I think it's more likely God put a star there. They've been following it. And how it works that it came and stood over where he was, I think it's a miracle because that's not how stars work. When you look at a star, there's one star that stays over top of a given point. Do you know what it is? All the stars we know? It's Polaris, the North Star. And that's because it happens to be lined up with the axis of rotation of the Earth. So as the Earth rotates, all the other stars from our perspective are moving, but that one stays put. It really is directly above one spot on the Earth, but the rest aren't. It, there's a miracle that happened here. So I, I've belabored that too long. By, by the way, one tangent, um, it doesn't talk about planets, going back to the conjunction theory, they didn't know about planets. The word planet is more recent than the writing of the Bible. It's just like when people say, why aren't there dinosaurs in the Bible? Well, there's a description of one in the book of Job, but the word dinosaur was created in English in the 1800s. Nobody had that word, so that's why it's not in the Bible. But that doesn't mean there's not a dinosaur there. Here for star, star was any heavenly body that's bright and that they see. It included planets. Um, anyway, I belabored that too long. Going on. The prophecy is the second sign, and um, it's in verse 6. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, I have it up here for you from Micah. This is the translation that we have in our Bibles, which is from the Hebrew. The one that we just read in verse 6 is what 
came from the Greek Septuagint, so the Greek translation of the Hebrew. This is what we have from the Hebrew, and it adds a little bit. Um, But you, Bethlehem of Pathra, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. We're talking about voices of incarnation. I think we see another glimpse here of the prediction that Yahweh himself is going to become human. Because this one to be ruler in Israel is one whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. The only one from everlasting is God himself. Um, But anyway, this prophecy is the other sign that we have in this passage. And it's interesting that the Jews know this prophecy. There's another verse. I didn't put it in your handout. It's over in John where I think it's in John 7 where the multitude is arguing over whether Jesus is really the Messiah or not. And one of the things that some of the skeptics say, and these are not the religious leaders, these are people in the multitude. It's pretty clear in that passage. One of the things they say is, isn't the Messiah supposed to be from Bethlehem, not from Galilee? They don't realize that he was born in Bethlehem. Um, But they know this prophecy. It's widely known in Jerusalem and just as an aside, I'm thinking these, these wise men, however many of them that there were, they have had this revealed to them or they figured it out, they've researched it, and they've come all this, this distance. They come into Jerusalem. I just wonder when they asked, where's the king of the Jews? They're expecting everybody to know. Now, that's speculation on my part, but I'm thinking their jaws made a drop that nobody was excited about the king of the Jews. Nobody knew, you know, well, they knew where to point them. But that leads to this point. There's a few from afar who researched it and made great effort to come. But there's many from close by who knew the where but didn't bother to go and look. It appears that the only one looking in Israel... Now, we know we got Simeon and Anna, so this, there are exceptions. But in this passage, for the people that are there in Jerusalem, Herod seems to be the only one who's taking it seriously because he's taking it as a threat. He sends them over to Bethlehem. No one else goes. The shepherds are told by angels, so they've already been uh, to check it out. But uh, this is just an ironic thing, I think, that a few people from the east who are not Jew, probably not Jews. That'd be another assumption. They could have been Jews because Jews have been taken there in exile. But it's probably a good assumption. They're probably not Jews. They're foreigners from far away. They have figured this out and come looking. And the people who are close by are missing it. Okay, so demonstrating devotion. Uh, Their purpose was to come and worship the newborn king. And this is the most important thing to me out of this passage. The rest of this message, I'm just going to be talking really about worship. Um, It's a Greek word, proskuneo, and it literally means to kiss the hand in reverence. And so the meaning, uh, uh, that's the literal meaning Things that people typically did in that time uh, uh, as a customary thing when worshiping was to fall upon knees and touch the ground with the forehead as an expression of profound reverence, to kneel or to prostrate themselves, to pay homage. This is what they would do before a foreign leader, um, someone who's a greater power than themselves. And uh, that's the the literal meaning of it. Um, They came to worship. They weren't coming in a thrill-sinking mode just to see this amazing thing. Um, It wasn't like a solar, a heavenly thing that was happening that they needed to go check it out. It wasn't like people hearing of an eclipse. We in this country, some of you, I did it, might have traveled when the eclipse happened in 2019 to some special place where you could be in the band of total eclipse and watch it. An amazing thing. They weren't doing it for that kind of reason. They were doing it because this was announcing to them there was a king being born, and they wanted to worship. They were being motivated out of adoration, out of wonder, out of amazement. 
It seems to me, and now this is speculation too, but what's not speculation is Herod and the people of Jerusalem connected it immediately with the Messiah. And that prophecy about Bethlehem, it's one from everlasting, God in human flesh. Did the wise men realize that? This was God becoming born in human? I don't know. I want to think they did, but they were certainly... This king of the Jews, they're not even from... It's not their king from a nationalistic perspective. And yet it has gripped them to where they're going to make this journey. So it mattered enough to them that they moved out of their comfort zone. They traveled far out of their home country. I want to show you a map. This is the Roman Empire specifically in 117 A.D. Um, The green and pink are all Roman provinces. And um, you see here we've got Jerusalem about here, and this this um, province of Mesopotamia. So Jer- Judea and Syria are two of the provinces that get mentioned in the Bible a lot. And as we come further east, Mesopotamia province included all of what classically is known as Mesopotamia, the Tigris and Euphrates river valleys. As you come down this, this down here where the river flows into this body of water, that's what we call the Persian Sea or the Arabian Sea. It goes by both, both names. Uh, this is Iraq, largely, all in here. And over here is Iran, modern-day countries. Um, Babylon is this dot right here. Uh, Ur would have been down here a little further towards the Persian Gulf where Abraham started out. Abram started out in Ur. Haran is right up about where the elm in the first elm in Mesopotamia is, kind of even with Cilicia. That's about where Haran is. So that journey where Abram moved up to Haran, and then God called him, and he left, and he came down to Canaan, would be coming down this way. Um, that's the lay of the land. And so now if you're, let's just assume they're in this area, they could have been from further east, the, the true Orient. But as the song said, three kings of Orient. Um, that's obviously speculation. We don't know how far east they were, but they would have had to be coming from outside the Roman Empire, which would have been a little trickier thing to do. If they were still in the Roman Empire, they could be coming from this area, and everybody would have viewed them as coming from the east. So if you're coming from here, and you want to go over here to Jerusalem, which is about right in there, it's not labeled on the map, but underneath where it says Judea, right about there, you got two clear ways to go. Um, the way that would be safest and easiest traveling would be the same way that Abram went. Follow the river valley, go up towards where Haran was, up in that area, and then you come back down through Syria this, and all the way to Judea. This was a major trade route. Um, Roman roads at the time would have made it easier way to go. It would have been safer. Uh, you have lots of food and water along the way. But it's further, 600 miles up to where Haran is, and 450 miles down, that's 1,050 miles. If you go straight across the desert, this would be the classical thing that we're grown up thinking from movies and stuff we've heard about these wise men. Then you need camels. Uh, the other point about camels, you don't necessarily need camels if you're going the way that, 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 um, that Abram went with Roman roads. I mean, they could have been on horses. Don't know. But you would need camels if you cut across the desert. Um, that's going to be the more treacherous way to go. It's, it's quicker in total time, but you've got two big threats. One is the desert environment where you can easily die if you get lost. Uh, number two is the threat of, of bandits, thieves, robbers out in the desert. People who live there have learned how to live there and take advantage of people trying to pass through. I read a fascinating uh, article of a couple years ago about a guy who was exploring out in the, out in Arabia in this desert after World War II, and he was to some extent uh, researching places where military events had happened. But he had a guide, and they were on camels and making their way through. And he talked several times in the article about how the guide was particularly on the alert for bandits because there were roving. Um, I don't know, marauders, I don't remember what term they used, that, that were out in this area, and they, they were looking to take advantage of people. I think that was probably true back then. 
Anyway, I looked up, I googled how far can a camel go in a day when heavily loaded, and it's 25 miles. Now, you can't have one-offs for, like, long competitions, races, and things where you'll see different numbers, but 25 miles. So that translates, if you take the long, safe route into 42 days, yeah, 42, and if you go across the desert, it would translate into 28 days, Um, but that's one way. So double that. You're looking at a minimum of two months. That's assuming you travel. The 28 and 42 is you travel every single day. You never take a break. So two months on the minimum, maybe four months on the top end for round trip. So they're spending a lot of time to do this. Going to worship this baby that's being born mattered so much to them that they're going to spend a lot of time to do it. They're also going to spend lots of money. Can, Can you think what it would take for you to take, let's pick the average, a three-month trip where you're no longer going to be working and making income. That's pretty imposing. Most people couldn't do that. Uh, I think of Joseph and Mary. Joseph is a carpenter. Joseph can relocate and then continue his carpentry trade. That's almost certainly what he did in them going to Bethlehem and then going down to Egypt. Um, but to just save up enough money, and I mean, you think how much, it, you think, pick your own number. We have different, everybody's got different standards of how you would do a three-month trip. Are you going to live in your car every night? Um, or are you going to be in a hotel? Do you have friends scattered all along the way where you can pinch uh, places to stay? Uh, buying food, gas for your transportation, it adds up. No matter how you would do it, what your standard or level is, whatever number you can think of that it would probably cost, if you didn't figure out how many days you got to work to pull that off before you go on the trip, it's probably similar for them. Now, these guys, being astrologers from the East, maybe they were wealthy by inheritance. I don't know where they got their money. I don't know who paid for astrologers back then. But it's going to cost money. This is not a freebie to do this. So worshiping this child that they have not ever met mattered that much to them. The fourth thing I want to suggest to you is it mattered enough to be humble. The first one's kind of a funny one in verse 2. They walked into this city and they ask a question. Um, we men are, it's, it's a stereotype, but you ladies joke about how we will never ask questions. We got our map, and we're going to figure it out in our pride, and we won't stop to ask a question. Well, these guys weren't that way. They get there. My hunch is they're expecting people to know the answer because they've already all been to see the king that just got born. And so they're asking and are flabbergasted that nobody's been to find the the guy. Um, But so they ask a question. They bowed down to the baby. Picture yourself bowing down to a baby. Now, you're thinking in your head, well, yeah, if I knew it was Jesus, I would. Well, they're convinced of something along that level because they bow down to a baby and they gave expensive gifts. I'm not going to really spend time on the gifts. Um, By the way, on this song, We Three Kings, the rest of the verses after the first verse are very good. And they're very biblical. It's just the first verse that has the, the things scattered in it that are not really supported by scripture but uh frankincense gets left out did you notice that when we sang it gold and myrrh gets mentioned that frankincense didn't get a verse maybe that's hard to rhyme with maybe i'm not sure but um but they gave expensive gifts and and so uh where i want where i want to go here i'm going to wrap up in in just a few minutes i got four verses i want to show you on worship First comes from just a couple pages over in Matthew 4. Satan is tempting Jesus. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. There's a principle about worship that comes out of here. Number one, that God alone is the one we should be serving, that we should be worshiping. But the corollary to it is that there are wrong things you can worship. Satan wants the worship that rightfully belongs to God. And by the way, if he can't get you to do that directly, I think he works through culture 
to get you to worship anything else other than your God if you're not going to worship him. Um, and so think of whatever hobby you might really like to do. Hobbies are good and they're okay. But things can get out of balance, and we need to guard against falling into where we're living our life driven by that other thing that's not God. Because you can worship the wrong things. Second verse is from Romans 12.1, says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The Greek word here is a different Greek word. Uh, and it, it, it means service, worshipful service is really kind of literally what it means. And it, it gets translated as sometimes as service. I think I have the New American Standard here because it used worship, spiritual worship. In the New King James, it says acceptable service, I think. Um, but the point that comes out of this is that worship can be costly. Presenting yourself as a living and holy sacrifice is a personal cost and a decision that you're putting God's desires ahead of your own. Um, The third one is from Revelation 14. This is actually an angel who's flying above the earth. And he says with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. I give you this verse because it draws out two interesting things about worship. Number one is worship can be motivated by fear. His, the hour of his judgment has come. Fear is actually a healthy motivator when it's fear of God. Now, God doesn't want you to fear other things. He wants you to fear only him. But he is God. And not created, and the creator of everything else, including us, is a valid thing to fear the God who made you. But the second thing I wanted to point out is an item of wonder about what your God has done. He's made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and springs of water. The angel is saying to worship God with an appeal to God's creation, to all of what he's made. And out of that, comes, I think, a whole realm of the things that make you just be amazed. I mentioned the North Star, Polaris, a number of you knew about knew it. Um, it is amazing to me that God has done something in the heavens and just left it there for us to discover someday. There's this one star that, from my perspective on Earth, that never moves. All the others are spinning if you look at different hours through the night. Um, is that an accident? I don't think it is. I think it's a design. I think God designs things to amaze us. Our bodies were fearfully and wonderfully made. As some of you know, my wife Gail last Saturday couldn't get out of bed. The world was spinning. She had major vertigo for several hours. And she's a whole lot better now. She was actually better by the next day. Um, But we found out that... um, that's because your inner, your ear has these three tubes that are in different directions and have fluid in them. And God has made your brain to wonderfully interpret the signals from the fluid moving in these three tubes in each ear. It's his, ver- his amazing original version of what man has copied with like a gyroscope, although the principles are a little different. And little crystals can come off from parts of your ear internally and be in that fluid and so when i move my head that fluid's moving and when i stop the fluid stops and my brain as god has made it understands that figures it out but if those crystals if i stop moving and the crystals keep moving in that tube they're making waves so fluid is moving still and my brain thinks everything's moving Fearfully and wonderfully made such a little thing that can go wrong. And for most of your life, you never experience that. Most of your life, you are just, when you move, I mean, you know whether you're moving, you stop and you're stopped and you walk and everything's normal because everything's working the way God designed it. And a little bitty thing 
can mess it up. But most of the time, it's not messed up. Isn't that amazing? We serve an awesome God who has thought through it all in creating. Actually, that may not be good representation of God. I don't know that he even needed to think through it. You know, I need to think through stuff if I'm designing something. God is at such amazing knowledge and wisdom and creative power. He just made it, and it's perfect. Anyway, wonder and amazement triggers worship. The next verse is the next chapter in Revelation 15, verse 4. Now this, interestingly enough, is a multitude, a huge multitude of people whose scripture says have overcome the beast and the mark of the beast. Now in that specific passage... I don't know if overcome is by faith they held faithful until they were killed or if they've actually survived. Other parts of Revelation show us both of those. So I'm not sure which it is here. But these are ones who have overcome the beast and they are praising God in the midst of their praise. They say, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name for you alone are holy For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. I give you this verse because seeing the work of God and his judgments, what he has revealed, triggers worship. And his holiness leads to worship. Holiness kind of ties in with the fear part. Him being so different from us triggers worship. So in summing up, Worship rightfully belongs to God. Worship involves sacrifice. Worship stems from understanding who God is and knowing what he has done. If I pause right here, a good question to consider is what are you doing that helps you to know God better so that you can worship well? Something to consider. Uh, Now, I, I started out saying worship is or does, and then I changed it to may because I don't want to make it uh, worship comes out in different ways for different people at different times but it may move you out of your comfort zone when's the last time worshiping god caused you to actually sacrifice time and money in a way that wasn't normal for you see now all of us mo- i shouldn't say all most of us are used to coming to church whether you grew up that way or you've just been doing it for a few years since you became a believer, we're used to it. And this is, we can, we, this is worship. When we come and we sing songs and we, hear, we pray together, we hear God's word taught, all of this is worship. But we're used to it. It does cost us time. We're taking time out of our Saturday. We're taking time uh, to come. So I, I'm not belittling what we're doing. But compared to what these three wise men, three, there I lapsed into the, the trap. These unknown number of wise men did. <laughs> When's the last time that worshiping caused you to move out of your comfort zone? That's worth thinking about. Worship can take time. It can cost money. And it always requires humility. I think yesterday at the men's breakfast, uh, John brought up the parable Jesus tells about the the tax collector or publican who's praying and the Pharisee who's praying. And the Pharisee is praying really to himself, Scripture says, thanking God that he's not like that publican over there, that tax guy, that filthy tax, evil tax, tax collector. The tax collector is humbly begging God for forgiveness. And Jesus says at the end, it's the publican, the tax collector, who goes home right with the Lord. Humility is involved when we worship. You can't worship God in pride. You can't. And Annalise, I appreciate what you shared in Sunday school this morning about Paul's humility. Because that ties in here. We can't worship properly in pride. Uh, So how is your worship? Some things to think about. Number one, do you think about it? Or is worship just something you do on the backstroke? Do you plan for it? Well, You do because you put it on your schedule. You're going to come to church on Sunday morning and worship with your fellow believers. But do you plan beyond just what the church does? Worship is more than just when we all come together. 
I was worshiping God when I was looking through my rifle at Jupiter and Saturn. I mean, even though I couldn't see the rings, it's just amazing that these things are so close to each other. And then he put them there. Um, Does it cost you anything? Do you ever give up comfort to worship? When I was a kid, I said I would say yes in a heartbeat. Coming on Sunday morning, I had to dress up, put on a tie, those shoes that were stiff. Were any of you there? My wife in choosing clothes for me, they're so much more comfortable now than what I grew up with. Um, and that's not my mom's fault. That was just general, generationally. We dressed less comfortable, from my kid's perspective anyway. Um, are you in awe of God? Now, I know many of you are in awe of God. I'm not asking this because I think you're not in awe of God. Rather, I'm asking you because it's an appropriate question. Awe of God triggers worship. Things that help you stand in awe of God, whether it's reading scripture and seeing things about him and what he's done, or realizing something awesome in the natural world that he's made and giving him credit. Those all trigger worship. Or do you take him for granted? You don't want to just take God for granted. That's a danger if you've been a Christian a long time. Is there a need to change the way you think about worship? And therefore the way you worship. Let me close this in prayer. Father, I thank you for um, your goodness. Psalm 107 says, Just give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And then it goes on in 